So in Acts chapter 15, I want to recap because the context of the last two weeks is so important. Basically, you've got Paul and Barnabas. They've returned from their first missionary journey. And when they get back to Antioch and Pisidia, which is the Antioch over there by the the region of Syria on the map up there, um, they arrive back. They've been gone for quite a bit of time. They've done some, they're come back world travelers. They come back weary from the road, but encouraged by the work of the Lord. And as they come back, they, they tell everybody there, this is what happened. This is all the stuff that God's doing outside of our local body of Christ. And of course, because of their testimony, the people that are listening are encouraged. They don't know what it means to go on a missionary journey, but they know that God has blessed Paul and Barnabas. And when they get back, they're worn out, but they're encouraged. They're full of joy. So they're wearied from the road, but they have this glow about them. God's used them, and so they're encouraged. And when they come back, they encourage the brethren, hey, keep going because God's at work in more than just our area. This isn't just a, an us thing. This is a God's working on a global scale. And so as they've returned, they're telling everyone what's going on, and they've been there for a while. They continue doing what they did before they went on the missionary journey. And as they use their gifts to build up the church and to teach, basically what happens is Paul and Barnabas are there, and, and there's these people that come up from Jerusalem. And when they come up, they say, you know what? Uh, we've been thinking about it. They've sent us up here, and they want us to tell you that, yes, Jesus is good, but you need to also follow some, follow some rules from the law of the Old Testament in order to be saved. Now, remember that the group that they're talking to when they're telling this is not a group of Jews who are going to be circumcised because of their heritage or their cultural background. They're talking to a group of Gentiles that have never had the Old Testament. They never had a, a rite of passage like circumcision. They never had the Old Testament law to build their culture around. And so to tell them this is ask, like asking them to do something that they'd never heard of before. What do you mean you want us to do circumcision? And we know what circumcision is. You can imagine if you've never heard of it before, they're explaining it like this is what you have to do to your male children. They're like, what? Why would we do that? That seems weird. I mean, I know you Jews do it and you probably have reasons for it, but that's weird. And why do we have to do that to be saved? That doesn't make any sense to me because Paul told us and many other people came and told us that to be, we're saved by faith in this Son of God and Him alone, not by works lest any of us should brag about it. So what do you mean we're going to be, we need to be circumcised to be saved? Well, there was this group in Jerusalem that they were Jewish and they got saved and they were like, well, this seems a little too easy. Maybe he meant you need Jesus and these things. And Jesus plus anything means nothing. Jesus plus anything that we can offer to earn our salvation, really, it's like adding something to a cake that it doesn't need to be a cake. It's like adding an ingredient that's really pointless. And so he basically, they have this sharp disagreement in the early church and they were like, okay, at the time they got done arguing, they're like, maybe we need to go seek some counsel on this. So they have the first council of the church in church history. You know, and they, they go, they get together with the leaders there at Jerusalem, they talk it out, and even there they have a big dispute. What are we going to do about this? Do we actually need to change what we're teaching? Because if we do, then what Jesus said on the cross when he said, it is finished, wasn't true. So are we following a Messiah that actually didn't die for the sins of the world? Is his sacrifice for our sins not enough? 
That's a key question. And so they spent lots of time and, and they didn't have to go to Jerusalem to deal with this. They could have very well said, you know what? We don't have to answer to you. Just trust what we say and deal with it. But I, I love the heart that Paul and Barnabas have because they don't do that. They don't throw that in their faces. What they do is they, they go ahead and go the extra mile. They, they are willing to go find out the answer. And so I, I saw this in Matthew chapter 20 when Jesus spoke to his disciples. He made a contrast between the rulers of the world and how they show their authority and the rulers of the kingdom of God and how they show their authority. In Matthew chapter 20, uh, verse 25, it says there, but Jesus called them to himself, talking about his disciples. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, in other words, the rulers of this world, they lord it over them. And those who are great, they exercise authority over them. In other words, they rule with an iron fist. They want to show you, hey, I'm in charge, and you just need to deal with it. But in verse 26, it says, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Paul and Barnabas, though they're having a sharp disagreement with this group coming in saying, you need to be circumcised, you need to follow the law to be saved, they argue with them, they have a great dispute. They're like, hey, we need to make a defense because what Jesus taught was that you could be saved by trusting in him. But at the same time, they're like, let's go find out what our final word is on this. Let's go talk to some other believers, some other church leaders, and we'll find out what the answer is on this. We'll search it out. And they were willing to serve their people in order to deal with this. They didn't just say, believe what we say and just deal with it. They said, we'll go get some counsel and we'll bring back word from, because these Judaizers, they came from Jerusalem. They came from Judea. So in many ways, they were like, well, these people came from the same place you guys came. Do they have the same authority? When they went and found out, they were like, hey, we didn't send those guys. They just went on their own accord. They wanted to add something to your faith that wasn't supposed to be taught. It wasn't taught by Jesus. And so he, he uh, at the end, of, when they had this discussion, Peter spoke up and he said, look, when, when God sent us to preach this same message to the Gentiles, he gave them the Holy Spirit just like he did us. And he did it before they were circumcised. And so I don't really, if God doesn't see them needing to be circumcised or perform some ritual from the law, then I don't see that it's a necessary requirement either. And he also pointed the finger at the Jews that were calling on these Gentiles to do something. He said, look, you, why do you put a burden on these people that are actually responding to the word of the Lord? Why are you putting a burden on them that you yourselves weren't even able to lift yourselves? You're not doing all the requirements of the law like you say you are. And so let's not put a burden on them that you yourselves can't fulfill. And so as a result of that, they came back with a message from the Jerusalem church. They said, you're saved by faith alone in the Son of God alone. And Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross is enough to pay for your sin, to give you peace with God. And so the apostles however, did write a couple of requirements. They said, look, this isn't requirements to be saved. This is guidelines so that you can have fellowship with Jewish Christians because they're used to meticulously paying attention to all the things they eat, to the way that they interact with people around them. And so in order to have good fellowship with them, here's some things we'd like for you to do. Uh, avoid 
eating meat that's sacrificed to idols. He said, if you do this, maybe you, you know that they're not anything and that you don't worship those gods anymore. But the Jews, they're so used to fulfilling that requirement, they, they don't want to make a distinction. And so let's, for the sake of love, don't eat that stuff. It's going to stumble them. And number two, don't eat animals that still have the blood in them because that's going to stumble them. Some of them are going to be creeped out. And then he gives another one. He says, abstain from sexual immorality. Now, this isn't a guideline. This is something that God has set forth. It's very real. It's something that, you know, he wants to be outside of his people. And so any type of sexual behavior outside of marriage while single, unmarried, any type of sexual behavior with someone other than your spouse if you are married, which is adultery. So sexual immorality outside of marriage, sexual adultery, that's inside marriage. Again, the elders didn't need to cover the, the whole of the law of the Old Testament. They were like, love the Lord your God with all your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. So if your neighbor is stumbled by you taking uh, your freedom to the nth degree, don't do it. So that for the sake of love, they can see the heart of God. And so um, that's what they came to the conclusion of. But I, what I want to remember is that this situation, because they handled it properly, because they didn't just lord it over them, but because they were willing to serve the people, it ended up encouraging and building up the believers and not tearing them down. There was a confidence that came from them knowing that their leaders were willing to go and seek counsel from godly men in order to seek out a matter and to be able to teach them what the will of the Lord was. I heard somebody this week, they posted this video on Facebook, and it was like, it was questions like, is it okay for Christians to drink? And is it okay for Christians to own guns? That was the two questions. And what he did was he gave a very biblical viewpoint, but instead of quoting the Bible to make his point, which would have made it steady and non-changing, he said, in my opinion. <laughs> and I think it's funny, many times we have the right answer, but we take the edge off of it. We take the authority away from it. When instead of saying, this is what God's word said, we start bringing in our opinion and trying to prove to them and convince them based on what we think. What we think will never stand in the lives of others because they'll go, well, I think something different. My opinion says this, but our opinion doesn't matter. It's what the Lord's opinion is. It's what his word says is the truth. And so we need to be careful when we try to come up with our own ways. And they, these guys didn't do that. And they could have. I'm an apostle. You have to just do what I say. They didn't do that. They said, you know what? Let's go seek the Lord with some other brothers and then we'll come back and we'll tell you what we came up with. And so this week in chapter 15, verse 36, we find Paul and Barnabas. They're there in Antioch. The dispute has been settled. <coughs> we don't know what the answer is. With what? The guns and the drinking. Oh, okay. <laughs> the biblical answer. Okay, the biblical answer. The biblical answer. The biblical answer on that, really, uh, he, he was like, you know, he was making references to what was on the bottle. And I thought it was pretty good points he was making. He goes, you ever notice that if you pick up a big Budweiser, what does it say on there? It says, king of beers. <laughs> but who is our king as Christians? Who's the king of kings? It's the Lord. So uh, I don't believe that drinking. Huh? Coors Light. like, I don't drink that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and... and uh, what the Bible teaches is that is according to the Bible, it says it's not drinking that is against the Lord. It's being drunk. And if, if your drinking keeps you from walking closer with the Lord, if it's where you find your comfort, it's where you get peace, then it's become a God to you. 
You know, it's become more important to you than the Lord. And for me, years ago, it wasn't somebody saying, hey, you, you got to quit drinking. I was reading the Bible one day and the Lord just inspired me. He was like, you know, in Ephesians chapter five, it says, don't be filled with uh, alcohol, which is dissipation, which is that letdown afterwards. He says, be being filled with the spirit. And I saw myself as this big glass that my life had stuff being poured into it in order to fill me up that would always leak out. And the Lord was like, I'd fill you with me, which is, he's the king of peace. You know, Anheuser is the king of beers. Uh, Jesus is the king of peace. Well, I, I was full of beer, but I didn't have any peace. And that's what I was trying to get when I was drinking it. So the Lord just freed me up. I was like, oh, well, I want peace. And he's like, well, get more of me, but I can't fill you up if you're already full. And so that's kind of my take from Ephesians 5. And then also um, in Leviticus, it talks about drinking and, and how the other nations would use it to, you know, basically that, that's where they would find their peace. And so I didn't give you any direct references because I didn't have notes about that. But my take on it is that drinking is not a sin, but drunkenness is. And for me, I could never stop with one. <laughs> so God was like, well, why don't you just stop yeah, and so I did, and, and you know what? I've never regretted it, and I believe that one day, you know, in the Bible, wine is a picture of joy. It's never a picture of sorrow, and so I believe that one day, we will all sit at the Lord's Supper, the, the wedding feast of the Lamb, we're going to celebrate, and He's going to have wine there, and it's going to be the best wine, and we're not going to be drinking it because we want to feel better. We're going to be drinking it because we we'll have joy and peace in the presence of the Lord, and, and I don't believe that it's going to be the type that's going to make us drunk. But I don't know. I think the Lord wants us to live sober lives where we're taking it. We're not avoiding life, but we're experiencing it. And so uh, that's kind of my take on it. I wish I would have been more prepared for that. It's a good question. Thanks, Cindy, for challenging me. <laughs> so in Acts chapter 15, verse 36, we find ourselves. They've come back for this, from this church council, and they've come to the conclusion of the matter. You know, you don't have to add works to your salvation. The Lord has purchased our salvation. It's finished, it's done, it's complete. Even on your worst day, God still loves you. He, he was willing to die for you. And even all of our righteousness, we talked about this at Men's Bible Study this week, the best of our best, when we think we can offer something or do something to earn our salvation, the Lord says, he says, your righteousness is like filthy rags. And... Uh, it, it's not just like a dirty rag he was talking about, and it's kind of graphic, but he, he was saying that your righteousness is like a woman's menstrual cloth. And that's the word. If you look at the Greek, it's, it's like something that nobody wants to talk about. You know, that's how bad it is. And, and so the reality is that, you know, the Lord's like, hey, you weren't able to earn it. You couldn't get anywhere close. You're never going to hit the mark on your own. Let me... Do it for you, and then I'm going to give you my spirit so that you can live this life. Because it wasn't saying, don't do any of the law. He was saying, you couldn't live it up, but once you love me and understand and have a relationship with me, most of those works of the law, that's going to be a fruit of your relationship with me. And so there in chapter uh, 15, verse 36, it says, After some days, said, Paul said to Barnabas, as they've been teaching the church there, he said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So 
Paul and Barnabas have spent this large amount of time on this missionary journey. They went from Antioch and they went to Cyprus and they went over to Perga and they went over to Antioch, then down to Iconium and Lystra and Derb. And then they turned around and they went back around again to encourage those on the way home. Well, now they've been back home for a while. But Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. He said, where your treasure lies, there your heart will be also. Now, did they go out and hand out money? Was that their treasure? No. Did they go out and spend their time? Yes. I don't know about you guys, but as my life goes on, I'm finding out I have less and less time to do the things I would like to do. It's like it gets spent quickly and we can't earn it back. It's just, it's gone. And so what's cool is that as they've spent their most precious resource going out and sharing the gospel with these people they didn't even know, and then they came back through to encourage them, they built a relationship And that relationship has led to them thinking of those people while they're not even with them. I wonder how they're doing. Are they still walking with the Lord? Or has there been a group come in and try to confuse them and draw them away from our Jesus? I wonder how how they're doing. Maybe we should go back and check on them, see how they're doing. I think about this, and I read this passage. I was reading a couple guys, and they were saying the same thought. And I was thinking, you know, we put our baby to bed at night. And we go back downstairs, but we want to take the little video camera thing with us so we can watch her. How's she doing? Is she okay? Is she still sleeping? Or is she fussing? You know, and, and we, that's where our heart lies because that's where our treasure lies. And so in the same way, Paul is looking at these new converts and he's seeing them as babies in the faith. And he's like, I want them to, to mature. I want them to grow. I want this relationship they have with the Lord. I don't want it to be built on me, but I do want to do my part and encourage them to keep going. Because they could very easily be drawn off track and be taken just like in the Old Testament when the Israelites were saved from Egypt and they were taken out to this place where they, could, they had nothing to trust in but the Lord. And the Lord over and over again had to say, why are you turning aside and going to these other gods and serving them and worshiping them? I'm the one that delivered you. But we quickly forget and we go back to the things that we find comfort in. And so Paul, his heart is to go back to them. So this is a good thing, right? This is what a shepherd does. He loves his sheep and he always checks up on them. He'll leave the 99 to go check on the one that's left the flock. He wants to make sure that there's not been any uh, wolves in sheep's clothing going in to draw them away from the Lord. And so when he wants to go back, he tells Barnabas and it says when Barnabas, verse 37, was determined to take with them, John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them, he doesn't call him Mark, he says, the one who had departed from us in Pamphylia and had not gone on with us to the work. He says, I I don't want to take John Mark. Remember, we took him last time. We got across Cyprus, we sailed to the mainland, and he was like, I'm done. I'm worn out. This was more than I bargained for. I'm just a young guy. I've got friends back home I haven't been able to check up with. We don't know why he went back. I'm just kind of asserting some things that might have come up. This is harder than I thought it was going to be. I'm a young guy. Why don't I live my life and then serve the Lord? I don't know. That, that's the thoughts that go through our mind. And, and what happens is he goes back and Barnabas, he's still wanting to encourage. Maybe now he understands how big of a deal it is to go on a mission trip. Maybe now he's got an opportunity to count the cost. Let's, let's try and take him again. He's worth our time. And Paul says, I don't want to take him. He almost kept us from keep going last time. We know we were called to do it. He was more of a hindrance than a help. Paul's a little bit type A. He's a lot like me. 
Not a whole, a whole lot of grace there, it seems. But I love this because we see the heart of God in this because Paul's kind of right. We don't need to take anything that will hinder us. But Barnabas is right too because we also need to give people grace. When they fail us, we need to give them another opportunity. So then, verse 39 says, The contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas. He departed, being commended by the grace of God, or by the brethren, to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So, two men, two godly men, two apostles. I'm sure at some point, both of these guys are in stained glass in some church that is like, look at these saints. And we get this stained glass view of the early church leaders as if they were just, they were on fire and they were infallible and they never failed. And here we have two of them arguing. Arguing over whether or not to take someone with them as another helper to go on this missionary journey. And I think it's funny because we like to think of them as like these perfect individuals and they're not. They're just like us. They're fallible. And so it says that the contention became so sharp. This was a big argument that they, they left the room. They went opposite directions. Isn't that funny? Have you guys ever been in an argument where you, you, you get so upset with the person you're arguing with? I have to go to the other room. I'm done. It's a dangerous spot because are you ever going to reconcile? Kelly and I, when we argue, we try to stay in the same room because we, want to, we don't want to stop. We, don't want to, we want to bring it back around. We want that connection we have to stay firm. And, but sometimes God uses those division points that we wouldn't necessarily call good for good anyway. Even our failures, even our uh, fractures in, in fellowship, God uses it for good because what we're going to see is that, well, what we do see here in these verses is that Paul chose Silas, but Barnabas took John Mark. He gave him the next opportunity, and look where they went. They started there at Antioch, by Seleucia there. And Paul and, excuse me, I've been saying Paul and Barnabas so much. Barnabas and John Mark, they sail there to Cyprus, and they begin their journey. They go to that island there. We don't know where they go after that, but that's where they started. And that's where the first missionary journey started. Paul, however, chooses another man, Silas, and they go up through Syria and through Cilicia, they go to the north. So it's like they're dividing, but it's kind of, you can ever go to Walmart, you got a list of things to get, and you only got so much time? Okay, let's go shop and let's divide and conquer. And so I'm going to go to this side of the store and you go to Lawn and Garden. And we do that so that we can cover more ground with the same amount of time. So what God uses is their failure. Their failure to communicate and have unity and to work together means that they choose other people. Even though it's a bad thing, God uses it for his glory. And I love that because I fail so often that I'm always like, Lord, I'm failing you and I feel like I'm hindering the kingdom more than I'm helping. And the Lord's like, it's okay, because I'm God. I knew it was gonna happen and I chose you anyway. And I'm gonna use your failures and your mistakes and your division for my glory. And we see this multiple times in the book of Acts. Division leads to multiple multiplication. And that happened when the, the per persecution happened. They were all divided, sent in different directions, but they had the gospel. These two groups have the gospel, they have the truth, and they're going to use them to strengthen all those churches and to preach the gospel. And if it weren't for this dispute, I wonder if Paul the Apostle 
would have went as far as Europe, which is where most of us can find our lineage. They took the gospel as far as Rome. And from that point, it spread to places like Spain and Great Britain and all these European countries that most of us, not all of us, can find our descent from, our, our families. The gospel, who knows, may not have made it to the United States through the Protestants that left the Catholic Church when they sailed across to our country. And so God used it for his greater plan. So I've kicked that dead horse until it's no longer kicking. So my point is, is that God uses those things. My question is, who was right? Was it Paul or was it Barnabas? Just a little discussion. You know, I'd like to hear your thoughts because I've read lots of people and I've heard different takes. Who was right? Who do you think is right and why do you think they were right? So, let's continue. I love what Matthew 16 says. It says, Jesus there speaking to his disciples. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Even when Satan tries to get in and discourage believers from within the church, God's going to cause that to not take place. He's going to still build his kingdom. And so this division leads to God's glory. We see the same thing in denominations. I don't know about you guys, but I don't know if you noticed, but we have lots of different churches. We have lots of different emphasis. And even where we left from in Farmington, eight years ago, there was 70 churches in Farmington. 70. Now you might not notice that because they're all spread out, but there's 70 churches. And here in our town, I don't know how many churches there are, but just on Main Street, there's probably 15, 20? In a town of just Ironton, 1,400. That many churches. And yet I still see so many people that aren't even going to a church. So why do we have so many churches and is that God's will? Well, I, I think that it's not God's will that we would have disunity or break fellowship with other believers but I think at the same time, in the same way as Paul's Barnabas, he's using it for his glory. Because there's a church that we have Bible study with every other Wednesday, men's Bible study, and they have Cowboy Church. I went down there one Sunday night and enjoyed fellowship with them. But to sit in their barn on hay bales makes me sneeze to no end. I'd be done every week. So for me, that doesn't reach me because if I'm so distracted by my sinuses being all jacked up, I'm not getting much Jesus. I'm just getting a cold every week. But there are literally 30 to 100 people every week that get there that would never set foot in a stained glass church. And they won't set foot in our storefront church. God's using it to reach a group of people that we would never reach. And in the same way, the First Baptist Church down there, we've had fellowship with them. We've shared our missionaries with them. But the cool thing is, is they're reaching people that will never set foot in our building. doesn't make them bad. It just, that's what reaches them just like the cowboy church. And so in the same way, I think that denominations, sometimes we look at them in the wrong light. I think it's like Paul and Barnabas. It's like, you know, do you want me to go north or west, Lord? And the Lord's like, go. I didn't tell you, just go. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've taught you. So that's what these men are doing, good and bad. So I've harped on that, like I said. Verse 1 of chapter 16. Now let's go ahead and read verse 40 and 41. But Paul and, 
Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And that's what they did. That was their ultimate goal. They strengthened the churches. Verse, chapter 16, verse 1. Then he went, then he came to Derb and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. So we won't hear any more about Barnabas, but we will hear about Paul and Silas. And as they go, they go up to the north and they end up in, back in this region. I don't know if you guys remember, it wasn't that long ago, Iconium, Lystra, and Derb. Who remembers what happened to Paul there? He got stoned. He, they threw rocks at him. And so when they threw rocks at him, he just about died and he's going back a third time because after he got stoned nearly to death, he went back into the town that night, stayed the night and left the next morning. Preaching the gospel, not quitting. You couldn't stop the guy. So his type A-ness was kind of helpful. helpful. So then he also comes back on this missionary journey and as he arrives there, he's there to strengthen the churches and he finds this guy named Timothy He's the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. So Barnabas and Paul, they split into two groups. Luke only covers Paul's journey. We don't hear much about Barnabas. That doesn't mean that he was outside of the will of God. It's just that Luke ends up being with Paul. And so he gives us the chronicle of what happens on their journey. But in the region of Derb and Lystra, there was a certain disciple by the name of Timothy. This boy is a believer. He's a young man. Timothy is a disciple of Christ. His mom is a Jewish Christian. She's come to faith in the, the Son of God. And his father is Greek. Now the Bible's silent on whether or not he's a believer, but we believe because of the silence that he was not a believer. That his mom was the only believer in that, that relationship. Now Timothy's faith, heritage did not start with his mom. His mom was a Christian, but it actually started with his grandma. And I think it's funny because we oftentimes think, well, if you're a grandparent, basically you're just there to babysit whenever there's, there's a, a need. But I find it interesting that this grandmother, her name Eunice, had more of an impact that we can see from Scripture on this young man Timothy than even his mom. According to 2 Timothy chapter 5, she had a great influence on him. She was his mother in the faith. Eunice had taken the time to leave Timothy an inheritance. How many parents do you know, maybe you're one, that wants your kids to have an inheritance or have it better than you did when you were growing up? I, I want my kids to have it better than I do when I, I did when I was growing up. And I used to have a different in, uh, idea of that than I do now. Because what we're going to find out is that Eunice had taken the time to leave Timothy an inheritance that would not be corrupted, where moth and rust wouldn't destroy. What she did with her time with her grandkid was she read the scriptures to him from a very young age, from the time that he was an infant. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 5 says that she taught the holy scriptures to Timothy from the time he was born, from the time of his infancy. I find that amazing because what do we think grandparents are supposed to do? Take the kids, spoil them, and they bring them back to our house and we've got to undo everything they did. But grandparents, more of the time, in the Bible, it seems that God uses them as a, a great influence to pass on an inheritance that maybe that many times in our economy today, grandparents don't have to give their grandkids. You know, they give it an inheritance that lasts forever. And it's funny because... You know, we think, well, we've only got so many days to share Jesus with people. 
But the real, reality of the thing is that if we share Jesus with our kids, then we're sharing it beyond our lifetime. And if, as grandparents, we share the gospel with our grandkids, we share it way beyond our lifetime. We can affect literally hundreds of people that we'll never meet just by sharing the gospel. But also notice, in today's passage, it says that Timothy was a disciple, meaning he had decided personally to follow Jesus. It wasn't just, well, I'm saved because my parents went to church. It's, it's an inheritance that he's gotten, he's taken to be his own. And the evidence of this can be found in verse 2 where it says he was well spoken of by the brethren. Anytime you see the word brethren, he's talking about other Christian believers. In other words, people didn't have to ask him, are you a Christian? They knew. It was evident in their lives. And so Paul in verse 3, in the first part says, says Paul wanted to have him go on with him and he took him. We'll stop there for just a moment because it gets a little controversial. But what happens is that he saw Timothy as a young Christian that didn't have a dad that was a believer. And so he said, I want to invest in you. And I think it's funny because we see lots of pastors. We see evangelists. But Paul, being one of the first bold evangelists, when he's going out shedding the gospel all over the world, he still sees the heart of the Lord in investing in individual people. He's not so busy that he's unwilling to take one person by his side and say, I want to impart to you the things that Jesus taught me. And we must do this in order for the faith not to die with our generation. We have to take individuals, bring them to our homes, invest in them, meet their needs, talk with them about things that matter the most all the time. This does start with our own children. This does start with our spouses, but it can't stop there. Because the nation of Israel, while they had taken the words of God and applied them to their own lives, they missed God's heart because God wasn't wanting them just to be blessed themselves. He was wanting them to be a blessing to the nations around them. Not to be affected by them, but to affect them. And that's what we want for our kids when they go to school, right? Obviously, they're going there, they're getting taught things, but we also want them not to pick up some things from their friends. We want them to... Uh, impart things to other people. If they know Jesus, we want them to share Jesus with their, the people they go to school with. Kids that will never set foot in a church apart from someone inviting them. And God's heart is that we wouldn't just take the blessing of knowing Jesus and having his word to live by and just hoard it for ourselves, but to have a heart for those that are outside of our homes, not to neglect those that are in our homes because it has to start there. But once we've fulfilled that and as we're fulfilling it, and try not to fail at it, to also take what we have and, and impart it to somebody that maybe won't get it, apart from us just investing in them, life on life, living life with them and sharing Jesus with them in our words, but more so in our actions, how we treat them. And I love seeing the heart of this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I always go back to this because it's so applicable. You know, when, when are we supposed to invest in others? When are we supposed to teach our kids to follow the Lord? And I love what Deuteronomy chapter 6 says. It says that we're supposed to, um, I'm reading it in my notes, love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. It starts there. While putting the words of the Lord into our heart, while we're doing that, because none of us are going to arrive and then go, okay, I'm ready to train up others. We're all like in on-the-job training. The Lord's saying, I want you to become faithful yourself. But as we're doing that, the enemy's going to go, okay, well, you're not there yet, so you can't invest in anybody. You don't have anything to teach. You're not doing that yourself. What the Lord's saying is be faithful, 
And as I teach you, I'm going to make you fruitful. A tree takes up nutrients and water from the soil. And while it's doing that, that's how it produces fruit. Not after it has its thirst quenched. Not after it's got all the nourishment it needs. While it's growing itself, it's got enough nutrients to overflow to the point where it produces fruit outside of itself. And that fruit ends up being a blessing to animals and to us, right? We go and pick the fruit, and that tree doesn't get anything from the fruit. It's given out more than it can take in. So my point is, is that we're supposed to be fruitful like that too. And Paul's doing this. He's investing them. And Deuteronomy 6, once again, it says we're supposed to do this when we're sitting in our houses, when we're walking by the way, on the way to and from places. And we spend more time, it seems, doing that than we do in our houses nowadays, right? When we're lying down at night, when we're putting our kids to bed, when we're rising up in the morning, when we're getting up, and by riding them on the doorposts and on the gates of their homes. I've always been blessed when I go places and literally they have scripture on the walls. Just as a constant reminder, just writing them on the... They, the Jewish people would take scriptures and write them down and they had these things, they were called, I forget they were called, they had these little boxes, they would literally hang them in front of their foreheads, they'd fold up the scriptures and they put it in the box. I don't think that was God's idea. It was just that we would always be meditating on the Word of God. It would always be in front of our faces. That we would carry our Bibles with us. That we would just, in those moments of desperation and like, Lord, I need something because I'm worn out right now, be able to draw from His Word. My point is that when are we supposed to invest in others? When are we supposed to teach it the ways of the Lord? All the time. You can't do that if you aren't around someone all the time. And as I was studying this, I was really convicted because I'm like, my own children, I... My own child, I can't invest in her all the time because most of the time, I'm gone. But I can't invest in my wife. I can text her when the Lord gives me something to encourage her with. I can also not grieve the time I don't have, but take advantage of the time that I do have. When I'm home, I can be home. When I can, I can take that time intentionally. When she's falling asleep on my shoulder at night, I take her upstairs, I pray over her. Pray that the Lord would change her heart at a young age so she wouldn't have to live a godless life for so long like I did. But maybe you can't do like Paul's doing. Maybe you can't take somebody with you everywhere. I can't take people with me to work, but I can talk to them while I'm at work. I like to go encourage some of the people that I know are Christians and, and share the gospel with people that aren't while I'm at work. Sharing with the people that are in front of us. And praying that the people that are in front of those that we can't be around would also invest in our families. But live as your call. Take advantage of the time that you do have. So let's, uh, in verse 3 it says, Paul wanted to have him go with him, and he took him. He circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Now, wait a minute. Paul's carrying a letter from the church we just studied about last week saying you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. This man, this Timothy, has already been saved. Why is he having Timothy circumcised? Seems to contradict everything we've been talking about. Well, Timothy was getting ready to go with him and they were going to go into synagogues and share Jesus with people. Timothy's from a split family, a Jew slash Greek family. He's going to be sharing the gospel with Jewish people. Does he have to be circumcised to be saved? No. But he can take this extra step, be circumcised, and the people in the temple or in the synagogues, these Jewish people are going to see that even though they're not going to see it, because that'd be weird. They're going to know that about him. Look, I've been circumcised even though I don't have to be for the sake of love. He's taken the extra step. He's making sure that he's done everything in his power 
to, to give opportunity for them to be willing to listen to him. He didn't do it because he had to. He did it for the sake of love. He was bending a little bit so they'd be more likely to listen to him. Paul telling him, hey, look, we're going to be sharing the gospel with Jews. You know how they are. Your mom's one. You know, why don't we take this step? Not because we have to, but so that they might listen. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep that list, those three requirements. Abstain from things offered to idols like the pagans do. Abstain from sexual immorality, which is a a thing they were doing in the pagan temples. Let's make a distinction between light and dark, evil and good. And as they delivered this, these things that were determined by the apostles and elders of Jerusalem, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. What we're going to find out is that Paul down the road, because of his investment in this young man named Timothy, we're going to find out that God's going to call him to be a pastor. And God's going to use him to take some of the load off of Paul. Paul's going to be able to continue to travel and invest further to the west. And meanwhile, Timothy's going to become a pastor in the, in the place called Ephesus there later in the journey. And Paul's going to leave him there because Paul investing in him life on life, he's going to say later, there's no one who is like-minded like me. There's no one else that I would commit to being your pastor as this man, Timothy, who I've served with, we've risked our lives with him. And I found him faithful. So I've invested in him the things that, that Jesus has invested in me. And now he's willing and I'm encouraging him to invest these things into other faithful men so that they will share it with others. So Paul's saying my investment in him is a deposit in a bank account that will bring dividends for eternity. So my conclusion, number one, what failures do you grieve and you think that God can't use because Paul and Barnabas, their failure to communicate led to a blessing for the church? And then what do you treasure? Where are you investing the treasures that God has given you? Short-term deposits on earth or long-term deposits in heaven. I always love to talk to you during the week, Cindy, because you're talking about, you're like, hey, I'm looking for ways to invest in my grandkids. I won't always be there for them, so I want them to know Jesus. And I've watched that over the years, and we're seeing fruit from that. Seeing many of them get saved and get baptized, and we want to see them now to be discipled and walk with the Lord. Who are you discipling, investing your time in outside of your home? Has God given you people that you might be able to invest in that aren't your own family? Perhaps someone who does not have a godly influence or a godly heritage. Be praying about that. I believe that's God's heart for each one of us. He's been showing me that lately. I, I think it's his heart for us to invest in those in our homes. And we must start there, but I also believe that it's got to go outside of our walls. Just like the kingdom of God and us sharing our faith goes outside of our church building. We've been blessed in order to reach out and be a blessing. And this division leads to Timothy's discipleship. And I I think that when we're divided, when we're sent to our jobs, when we're sent outside of our comfort zones, God is desiring to use that division to lead to discipleship. Because whether we walk or believe this on a daily basis or not, the only things we get to take with us to heaven are people. And if we don't try to take people, we'll we'll get up there and be like, "I, I didn't bring anybody. You know, I've heard people say before, basically, you know, um, you're so heavenly minded that you're no, of no earthly good. You're just trying to escape this world. 
But the reality is, is if we're really walking with the Lord, we're not trying to escape the world. We're trying to evacuate as many people as we can and take them with us. And that's, that's really my heart, and I know it's the Lord's heart. So let's just continue to pray that God would use us to do that. Anyway, Father, thank you so much for being a missionary God. Whether we ever leave our town to be missionaries or not, to go to a foreign country, Lord, you're sending us daily to just intersect our lives with people that don't know you. I thank you that you reached out to Paul on the road to Damascus, that you sent your son to provide salvation for us. But I also thank you that you send individuals into our lives to invest and disciple us so that we don't depart from the faith, so that we don't go back to our comfort zones and avoid reality with you, Lord. I thank you so much for being willing to step in when we are being disobedient and to chastise us. I thank you for even using our failures to bless others as you've done in Paul and Barnabas this morning. Father, help us to in all things seek your face. Help us to trust you with our failures. And Lord, help us to see that you want to put us in contact with a Timothy of our own. Lord, each one of us has a Paul that has taken time to invest in us personally. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Help us to bless those Pauls and pray for them. And each one of us has a Timothy that you want to use us to invest in on a personal level. Not just to vaguely share the gospel with everyone we hear, although that's your heart, but also to pick out someone to invest in personally. Jesus showed that by investing in 12. And not everybody always responds and wants to stick around like Judas. But Lord, help us to invest in people nonetheless. Help us not to, um, to be hurt by those that, that reject it. Help us to teach those that are willing to receive. So Father, anyway, Lord, thank you so much for being a God who sins. Lord, send us into our community to invest in those that you put in our path. And Lord, in all things, may we just point them to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.